Well, good morning. Good morning, Mosaic. My name is Malcolm. I'm one of the I'm one of the pastors here. It's been it's been a few weeks since I was last able to expound the word with you all. But the Lord has a text of scripture to challenge and to comfort us this morning. Isaiah 36. If you're with us for the first time, we've been preaching through the book of Isaiah for the last seven months. Yes, it's been that long, and we're like halfway done. So far, Isaiah's been called to preach a difficult message to the people of Judah, that that the people and their king oppress the poor and their idolaters, And and if they don't turn, then Assyria, the big bad neighboring empire, is going to overtake them. Now, many of the chapters leading up to this point have been chapters of judgment from the Lord. Judgment on the nations for their greed, for their exploitation and domination of the weak, for their worship of gods who can't help them. But there's also historical data, too. We learn that as Judah's king considered the options, he first went to Egypt for help. Yes, you heard that right. The king of Judah, God's people, went to Egypt, the paradigmatic enslaver, for help. But that didn't really work out, so, so Assyria gave them another option. Just, just pay us off, they said. So King Hezekiah stripped the people and the temple of their riches and handed it over to Assyria. But Assyria responded with, hey, thanks for that. Also, we're still taking over. Which leaves the people of Judah in a bit of a bind. And these next few chapters through, through chapter 39 are going to end the first part of the book of Isaiah, the part that actually takes them into Babylonian exile. No, I didn't misspeak. Not Assyrian exile. Babylonian exile. So we have a story with Assyria that we need to wrap up. And chapter 36 is rhetorically brilliant and remarkably relevant. Let me show you what I mean. So first, imagine the scene. Also, uh, I chose the, 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 the NRSV this morning because uh, Sennacherib's emissary, his, his chief cupbearer, his like, most trusted advisor, uh, in some translations it says uh, the imperial commander, which is lame. The word is rabshaka, which is awesome. S- just say it. Say it. Rabshaka. Rabshaka. See, it's like the hyena saying Mufasa. Rabshaka, Rabshaka. So, 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 so Sennacherib sends his Rabshaka to, to Judah with, with a message. And so King Hezekiah sends out his three advisors, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. And then the Rabshaka launches into his intimidation speech. So I want you to hear again verses 4 through 10. Thus says the great king of Assyria, on, on what do you base this confidence of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? On whom do you now rely that you have rebelled against me? See, you're relying on Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we rely on the Lord, our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land 
and destroy it. Sennacherib is methodically breaking down Judah in this speech, or so he thinks. This is actually a masterclass on the tactics of the enemy. Not just the people of God's imperial enemies, but our enemies, the powers, the principalities that seek to enslave us, sin, death, the world, and the devil. Look, the first thing that the Rabshaka does is he ridicules their attempt at diplomacy. Verse 5, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? This is like the, this is like the horror movies that depict exorcisms and the, and the priest prays the Our Father and the demon-possessed person like mocks them. According to the enemy, fighting with prayer is like bringing a spoon to a knife fight, or so he would have us think. The second thing that, that the Rabshaka does is he addresses the people's failures. He ridicules the fact that this king ran to Egypt. This is another common tactic of the enemy, to place your mistakes and your sins before your eyes and to use them as reasons for you to surrender. Look at all the times in your life that you messed up. You're a failure. Give up. Common tactic, light, light work. I'm going to skip the comment about the altars and Hezekiah for a moment, but don't worry, I'm going to come back to it. The third effective tactic that he uses is just a flat-out insult of their capabilities. You don't even have the riders to man the horses that I could give you out of my abundance, and even if you did, I would still destroy you. But the cherry on top is verse 10. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Your own God told me to do this stuff. The best thing for you to do is surrender. Now, verses 11 and 12 are terrifying. I want you to, re- like, like, remember the stakes. So imagine that you're, that you're just in your house or your, or your apartment, and you hear a rumbling outside, and it's an army, and they are at your door speaking into your ring doorbell and telling you the things that they're going to do to you if you don't open up. When the king's representatives respond to the right... To the, to the Rabshaka, their, their main response is, hey, hey, don't talk so loud and don't say it so that the people can hear you. It's like, it's like the army's at your door, speaking in your doorbell, and your kids can hear. Like, don't, don't say this in front of the kids. But the Rabshaka doesn't care. Like, this is the whole point. The whole point is to terrify the people. And, 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 this, and this line actually, actually reveals that, like, the Rabshaka is not just a mouthpiece for the king of Assyria. The Rabshaka is also, like, a twisted dude. His words in verse 12 are chilling. Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to all the people sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? In case you didn't get that, this is the language of a siege. So they've got the people surrounded, and what they're saying is, we're going to cut off your food and your water to the point that the only solids and liquids that will be around you will be in your toilets. That is horrifying. And so then the Rabshaka doubles down, and he intentionally speaks in Yehudish, which is, which is Judah's dialect. And in the beginning, he was aggressive, but now he turns on the charm in verses 14 to 16. Don't, don't listen to Hezekiah. He can't save you. Don't listen to him when he says, the Lord will save you. Also, this is, this is incredibly disrespectful, as he's intentionally not calling Hezekiah King Hezekiah. It's just like a foreign leader doing a press conference on U.S. soil and calling the current president Joe. Like, there's, there's audacity. But then, but then the Rabshaka continues with lies, telling the people that, that their lives will be better off. In verse 16, do not listen to Hezekiah. 
For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me. Come out to me, then every one of you will eat from your own vine and your own fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. This language is very similar to the language of what the Lord's deliverance looks like, a world of equity where everyone has the resources to support themselves and to share. In fact, Micah 4.4 sounds just like this. In the day of the Lord, they shall, they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Notice what the Rabshaka is doing. He's taking the good gifts of the Lord, and he's claiming that he's the source of them. The capstone is actually pretty on brand for an imperial adversary. It's just a raw statement of dominating power. It's the Rabshaka saying at the end of this chapter, look, we wiped everybody else out. What makes you any different? Everybody else had gods too, and you see what we did to them. The same thing is going to happen with you and your measly lord. And the chapter ends with the silence of King Hezekiah's advisors, because that's what he told them to do. But what do you do when the enemy throws these things at you? We're going to see Hezekiah's response, right or wrong, next week. This is a two-parter. But this week, I want us to consider the fact that the Rabshakeh's tactics in this speech are the tactics that sin and the world use against us now, every day. Brothers and sisters, chances are you can remember a time when you came up against a circumstance where you didn't have any control and all you could do was pray. I felt this way in some pastoral care situations when I'm sitting with a brother or sister who's going through excruciating pain and there's nothing I can do in that moment and I'm sure that you've been tempted, as am I in some situations, to think that prayer is useless. It's just words. Those are lies of the enemy. Rambling of the rabshaka. Chances are you can, you can remember a time when you committed a sin, when you, maybe you spoke harshly to your husband or to your wife or to your kids. Maybe you saw someone in need and you carelessly passed them by. Maybe you struggle with an addiction to alcohol, drugs, pornography, or whatever, and, you're, and you were clean, but then you relapsed, and then you spent the next few days beating yourself up about it, telling yourself that you're terrible, that you'll never amount to anything, telling yourself that maybe you deserve to suffer at the hands of the Lord. Maybe sin just has an unbreakable hold on your life. Those are lies of the enemy. That is rambling of the rabshaka. The temptations that the enemy uses here are the same temptations that the devil used with Jesus in the wilderness. He mocked his physical weakness. He tried to use the words of God to trip him up, and he attempted to give him things that he never owned in the first place. Do you remember Matthew 4 and Jesus' temptations? The first temptation, the devil tells him to turn these stones into bread. Attempting to use Jesus' hunger to get him to use his power in a way that doesn't save anybody else, it just saves him. Jesus doesn't take that bait. Jesus doesn't believe that hype. Then the devil takes a spiritual route. He says, jump off this mountain. The Lord will save you. If you trust God so much, he'll, he'll save you from an obviously foolish decision. Once again, Jesus doesn't take the bait. But the last temptation, the devil takes the political route. All the kingdoms of the world, Jesus, they belong to me, and you can have them. And here's the thing, that, that, that this, this temptation links it back to the Rabshaka and also links it up to us. Both of those texts, the temptation of the devil and these words of the Rabshaka, they reveal to us that when we really think about it, 
The world and the enemy have no idea what they're talking about, and they, and they have no idea who they're messing with. I said I'd return to verse 7. The Rav Shaka says, But if you say to me, we're depending on the Lord, our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Actually, no. Uh, this is actually a misunderstanding from, 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 from Assyria. See, King, see, see, Sennacherib heard that Hezekiah was tearing down altars, and he thought that that would be offensive to the Lord. Because Assyria, in its context, is used to conquering places that serve multiple gods. He's used to conquering places where they believe that, hey, if we just appease the right combination of gods, then we'll be fine. See, Hezekiah was doing exactly what the Lord told him to do. Get rid of idols because Yahweh is the only true God. And a serious mistake is thinking that conquering the people of the Lord is going to be just as easy as conquering anybody else. He even says so in verse 20. Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Well, the Lord can do it because the Lord's real. And Satan, Satan is actually going to echo this temptation when, you, when, you, when he offers the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. But, but spoiler alert, neither Assyria nor the devil actually have the power or the control that they claim. Both of them talk a good game, but neither of them can back it up. It's like the James Brown song, like a, like a dull knife just ain't cutting, just talking loud and saying nothing. That's, that's precisely what the enemy does. He tries to shock you with suffering and temptation into forgetting the truth. But instead, the scriptures give a picture of a God who is reliable, a God who always backs up what he says, a God who always redeems his people, a God who is always near his people. We see, we see a God who not only created his people but redeemed them from Egypt, who miraculously sent plagues on their oppressors when they were powerless, who parted the Red Sea so that they could walk and collapsed it to stop the Egyptians, who, who gave them a law so that they could be a people who bore witness to the world that there's a different way to live, a way suffused with love, with justice, with equity, with abundance, and with devotion to one God, a God who gave them a land and who gave them a future, but the Lord has not only done these things for his people, he has also given them his, his very self in the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God came, yes, to save us from our sin, but also to assure us, yes, you can trust this God. And how can I make this clear to you? I'll do the most tangible thing that I can possibly do. I will die for you. Jesus has a habit of doing things that we can see in order to assure us of things that we can't see. For example, when he heals the lame man who's, who's, who's brought to him by his friends, he heals him so that they would know that he can forgive sins. Brothers and sisters, he died not only to defeat our sin, but to assure us that we can trust him because he would go to the very end for his people. But he got up to remind us that it's worth it. He got up to remind you that regardless of the rambling of the Rabshaka or the temptations of the world or the discouragement of one's circumstances, he has won the victory. The world is in his hands. Death is not his master, it's his servant. Assyria didn't know who it was messing with, and the devil doesn't know who he's messing with. But the call to you and I, brothers and sisters, is whether we will build lives based upon that truth or whether we'll believe the hype. Will we, will, will we trust the voice of the Spirit 
as revealed to us in the scriptures, or will we listen to every voice around us that claims to be the voice of God? And I get it. This is where things sometimes get dicey. After all, sometimes lies are really convenient. I was talking to Slim about the liturgy this week, and my first thought was, well, when I lie, why do I do it? Or, you know, when I did lie in the past, why did I do it <laughs> then, right? Yeah. Why, well, why do we lie? We lie to save face. We lie to avoid accountability. But all that does is eat you up. If your default is the truth, then you don't have to remember. You don't have to defend yourself. You can just lay it out and let the chips fall where they may. Because the fact of the matter is this. What's done in the dark will come to light. It's better to just get ahead of it. The other dicey thing, though, is this question. How do I know the distinction between a truth and a lie? How do, I, how do I know which way to go in a world that seems to get increasingly gray as the days go by? Maybe things aren't so black and white all the time. You're right. There isn't a, a formula for determining whether or not the words that you hear are the words of the Rabshaka or an angel of the Lord. But this is one of the reasons why the scriptures need to be in our bones rather than just an occasional acquaintance. When the, when the scriptures are in our bones, then we can see two or three good options and we can just choose one because we know that the Lord can use any of them to get his work done. When the scriptures are in my bones, then my impulses begin to shift. It, it, it becomes my first priority to love God and to love my neighbor. And then, and then my decisions end up being sifted through that lens. And so when you hear something, and it doesn't seem to be something specifically addressed in scripture, the Lord has given you some guidance. Does it bring you closer to the Lord and closer to your brothers and sisters? Or does it isolate you? Because lies break the unity of the body, but the truth, even if it's inconvenient, even if it requires repentance, even if it's messy, the truth is always worth it. But also hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you're going to be able to just figure it all out if you just get alone with your Bible. The work of discernment has two necessary elements, the Spirit of God and Spirit-filled community. Sometimes your brother or sister will be able to see the truth that you can't or don't want to see. It's one of the reasons why we need each other. So, will we believe the lie? Well, no one understands me and I'm doomed to be alone. Or will we believe the Lord when he says in Mark 10, 29, that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or, or mother or father or children or fields for his sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Will we believe the truth that the church is supposed to be the fulfillment of Christ's promise in that text. That whatever you left for Jesus, you gain in the community that he's called. Will we believe the lie that our world and our economy tells us that, that greed and accumulation is the only way to success? Or will we believe the Lord who tells us that it's more blessed to give than to receive? Will we believe the other lie that our economy tells us that our brothers and sisters are competitors? Or will we see our brothers and sisters as co-conspirators and co-laborers in the gospel? 
Will we believe the lie that our economy tells us? You'll note the economy does a lot of lying. That the, that the, that, that the poor are poor largely because of their own laziness and the rich are rich because of their hard work. Or will we heed the truth of the scriptures that more often than not poverty is a result of exploitation and the people of God are called to come alongside the poor. That blessed are the poor. That the most righteous use of your resources is to share them. Will we believe the lie that the world tells us? That sexual fulfillment and affirmation is the peak of human identity? Or will we deeply believe that the Lord's commands are actually what's best for us? Will we believe the lie that political power and violence are the only ways to create systemic change? Or will we live in the truth that God has gathered a people to live with the principles of the kingdom of God now? That we don't have to wait until the nation or the world gets its act together. That we can show them how it's done. In short, will you believe the lie that you're powerless or will you live a life based in the truth that because Christ has, that, 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 that Christ has died, that Christ is risen and Christ will come again and the truth that because you have placed your faith in him, you are indwelt by his very spirit, that you have been imbued with power, peace, and joy beyond your wildest imaginations. And that's not just like a rhetorical, like it, it, it's, it's true. Brothers and sisters, our, our lives are lived in the midst of this back and forth. Believe the lies, believe the truth. Believe the lies, believe the truth. And the battle that we fight on a daily basis is not with flesh and blood, but with the rulers, with the powers, the principalities, the evil spiritual forces. And the war that they are trying to wage against us is what's called a war of attrition. That is, they're going to keep throwing stuff at us until we get tired and surrender. That's specifically what Assyria is trying to do in the Rabshakeh speech. He's trying to get the people to surrender out of fear of what the big bad empire is going to do to them. And this is exactly what the enemy wants to do to us. Get us to forget the Lord's promises and focus on the fear and uncertainty of living in a sinful world. But this is also one of the reasons why we gather together. To be reminded that the world is not as it ought to be, but it will be. It's together that we pray that God's kingdom would come, even here, even now. So don't give up, brother. Don't give up, sister. The God that we serve is faithful. The work he started, he will finish. And I know it feels like he's far from you right now. But we're reminded by his word that that is a lie. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Death can't do it. Life can't do it, angels can't do it, rulers can't do it, things present can't do it, things in that future that we don't know can't do it, powers can't do it, height can't do it, depth can't do it, nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God. So resist the railing of the Rabshaka. Don't believe the hype. Instead, rest, serve, and love in the truth. The truth that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And in the in-between time, let's love our neighbors. Pray, pray with me.